now. Tēnā koutou katoa. Greetings, everyone. Hi, Mai, and welcome to the Learns Marine Reserves virtual field trip. I'm Andrew, the Learns field trip teacher, and it's just gone 9.15 on Thursday, the 21st of February. This is our third and final field trip web conference, and with me is Ben Knight. So Ben is a bit of an expert on all things marine. And he's been with us all week, so no doubt you've seen him in the videos and some of the images throughout my diaries and so on and so forth. Uh, so right now, we're just just the beach is just just over here. I'll take you on a bit of a walk and show you. So we're at the Carpety Boat uh, the Carpety Boating Club, and it's a busy day. There's people about to head off to go to uh, Carpety Island. So I'll just take you up here. There's Carpety, and there's some people just waiting to get onto the ferry like we did the other day. So it's a lovely day here. I took a really nice photo of Carpety Island with the sun going down last night, which I'll put in my diary today. So uh, that's where we are today, and we've also got some friends with us, Tito the Tui from Waiheke School, and from Witherley School in Blenheim, Kauru Kiwi, and my ambassador, Eddie, Eddie the Fuel. So today we're going to be doing some community involvement type activities namely litter survey. So I'm really interested. It's not just a beach cleanup. It's a lot more than that. So I'm really in interested in talking more with Ben and some students about that later today. Uh, in the meantime, um, the, hang on just one moment. In the meantime, sorry. Where's it gone? It's down here. Sorry, I've lost you. There we are. In the meantime, I'd like to welcome our speaking school, Witherley School. So it's really great to have you as our speaking school this morning. So we haven't had any speaking schools so far this week on our web conferences. So wonderful that you can join us. And those of you who have joined to listen, welcome also. There will be an opportunity after the speaking school questions to put further questions in the chat box but in the meantime we'll begin with our questions from our speaking school so um, students just a reminder if you can get nice and close to wherever it is that you're asking your question the microphone the laptop and if you can introduce yourself with your first name so we know who we're speaking with that would be great so let's get underway with question number one please Right, now you're going to have to get probably a bit closer because I can't lip read and we couldn't hear a word you said. So you'll have to get really close and speak nice and loudly. How is it decided where a marine reserve goes and who is responsible for ensuring that it's safe? I still couldn't quite pick that up. I think it's 
was the question, how was it decided where a marine reserve goes? Righty ho. Gosh, it's the, in, an, in an ideal situation, um, the marine scientists would, would be the ones that make that decision. So they'd look at the habitats in the area, the different types of marine life that live there, and then they would try and uh, protect a representative sample of those habitats and marine life within the marine reserve plan. Um, but in, in reality, there's lots of different stakeholders or different people and groups that um, need to be involved. Um, there's the local iwi and tangata whenua, really important that they uh, play a, a key role in terms of making that decision. Um, there's the local boaties and the local people who like to go out fishing. So the conversation actually has to be quite broad with lots of different people getting to have um, some input. And so for Kapiti Marine Reserve, it actually took nearly three years for the final um, area that went in to protection to be decided and there was a lot of research and surveying of all of those different people that were involved um, and that were going to benefit so to make sure that everybody supported it. Yeah it's not just a matter of hey let's put a marine res reserve here and away you go there's a lot of different factors that have to come into the mix. Yeah and some of the things that people had to think about here was um, for the people who wanted to still go fishing um, they, on an island like Kapiti, um, ideally you would protect the whole island, so the sea area all around the island, but people who wanted to go out fishing, they, um, they needed somewhere to be able to go fishing that was still sheltered, and so really amazing spot that I love diving at up at the north end of Kapiti Island, a deep reef there, um, was in the original plan to be protected because it was so special, amazing habitat, incredible abundance of life, and also um, a black coral tree, which is uh, very rare and highly unusual to find in shallow water. Um, but that was also the most sheltered place when the wind blows from the south here. And uh, if you've ever been to the Carpentry Coast, you probably know that it can get quite windy here at times. So you have to make sure that everybody is on board with the plan. And that can take time for everybody to get on board. So there's, there's time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, we're really lucky to have such a wonderful day today here. Um, as you can see earlier when I showed you, the water's pretty calm actually. So, um, and the sun's shining. So good day for doing some beach cleanup type work. Okay. So, so Andrew, the, um, we didn't quite catch the first um, student's name and then she, she had a second half to her question, but I think it's question two. So um, we'll just see what happens here. Yeah, so. Um, yep, we'll just see what um, this next student does. Oh, her, yeah, so, yeah, okay. Question number two, please, guys. Nice and close. Is there, is there any way you can get even closer? I can hear your teacher. <laughs> Right, that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, so the, um, hang on a minute. So the, um, 
there was a second part to that question. So I had, when I put the questions on the website, I divided them into two parts. So the first part was, Barry, you're right. How it is, how was it decided where a marine reserve goes? The second part to that question, which I made a separate question, was who is responsible for ensuring a marine, the marine reserves are kept safe? So just before we answer question number three, we'll just attend to that question first. And I actually think the answer to question number two, who's responsible for making sure that the marine reserve is kept safe, I think we all are, mm. really. Uh, the Department of Conservation has the legal authority, so they're the ones that, that it's their job to, to keep the marine reserve safe. But every time we go out on the water, whether we're boaties, divers, fishers, uh, or, or in places where the marine reserve is um, straight off the beach, uh, you know, surf casting or, or whatever we're doing, it's up to each of us to be aware of the rules, um, aware of the area that's protected. And we talked about using the boundary markers and marine mate. So Department of Conservation has, has the job, but it's up to all of us to mm. support them and all of us to make sure that we as a, a community of marine users are, are uh, following the rules. So it's everyone. That's a really good point. And that's really what we're going to be looking at today a lot is taking some responsibility and playing a part. And, you know, it, it, it's hopeless saying, oh, we'll just leave it to somebody else. Because if we're all going to be users of that place, that facility, um, then we all need to play, it, part, uh, play a part um, in maintaining it. And up here on the Carpenty Coast, um, but it was too windy. So a lot of the time, um, the Department of Conservation really relies on our community here. So we, um, you know, we, all of us boaties and, and the guys from the dive club and the boat club here, we're all keeping an eye on things. And if we see somebody in the reserve, um, we'll often just cruise on up to them and just let them know. Most of the time, it's just people don't know where the boundaries are. So just a quick word can sometimes um, get a good outcome. And, and yeah, otherwise, you know, if you really are concerned that somebody's doing something, um, they shouldn't be in the marine reserve, then you can call 0800 DOCOT and, um, and that will get uh, the Department of Conservation on the job. Great. Okay. So our next question. Number three. You could just repeat that. Yeah, same person. Yeah, so this was about what people can do in the marine reserve. Yeah. Can you repeat it, please? The, the girl with the, with the blonde hair. I didn't catch your name. Charlotte. Charlotte, thanks. Yeah, so you can't fish in the marine reserve. That's probably the most important rule for a marine reserve is you can't go fishing there. Uh, but we definitely would love it if people would go snorkeling. Um, you can't take anything, but we'd love it for people to go snorkeling, diving, kayaking, boating, um, and just enjoying that space and enjoying um, that, that different way of relating, which is around protection and looking after it. Um, and out at Carpeti at the north end in the western reserve, we've got a place called Hole in the Wall Bay, um, and, uh, and up there, there's a seal colony. And so oftentimes on the weekend, uh, you know, I'll take, take um, some friends and family up there and we'll go for a snorkel with the seals, which is a really amazing experience. So you can do marine activities, you can do recreational activities. You can't take anything. Uh, you can't leave any litter or rubbish behind. Um, and you definitely can't go fishing in the reserve, but you're more than welcome to get in there and enjoy the marine life. That, that's really what a marine reserve is about, is creating opportunity for people to see what the marine life is like without the pressure of fishing. So seeing bigger fish, seeing more fish, seeing more variety of fish as well. 
and it's a, it's they call it a no take marine reserve. So not just fish, living things, also rocks, shell, driftwood, everything needs to be left in place because it's to try and make a habitat, an environment that is completely untouched by by humans, basically. No interference at all to create the most natural space possible. And that includes no fish feeding too. So that sometimes That's surprises a, people because, um, you know, it is quite fun to feed the fish. Yeah. But in a marine reserve, when you if you feed fish, you're going to change the fish behaviour. Yeah. And really the whole idea is, as, um, as Andrew said, it's about um, restoring that environment to what it might have been like before humans arrived. And also for scientists to be able to go out and, and try and assess the impacts that we are making on the areas outside of the marine reserve by having that that controlled area where there's no human activity which is going to change fish behavior or reduce fish numbers quite dangerous too i mean i've been bitten by a snapper before and that pretty strong bite well, i hope it wasn't in a marine reserve yeah, no, it wasn't, no, it wasn't. <laughs> you can't feed your fingers to the fish okay keep your fingers well away from their chompers they're called snapper for a reason yeah. though, aren't they yeah, yeah. strong teeth Okay, thanks for that question. And so now we'll move on to our next question, please, Witherley School. I didn't hear I that, your William. Teacher tells you to keep your voices down sometimes. <laughs> So William, are there any special rules people need to follow? Is that was that the one? Was that the, was that it, William? The, about the rules? No. How do fish know that the marine reserve and choose to go there? Ah, right. <laughs> I wonder that myself. How do fish know where the marine we were, reserve is? We were is? talking about this the other yeah. day. It's a good question. Because out at Kapiti, when we were snorkeling there the other day, um, even though there wasn't lots of fish around that day because the visibility wasn't great, mm. it was kind of hard to see. There was snapper there uh, and in really shallow water. Shelley um, got some nice footage of the snapper, so did Andrew. Uh, and so I often wonder, how do these fish know where it's, where it's protected? So for some fish, I think what happens is they, they settle out on the reef, like a blue cod would be a good example, or a crayfish, and they don't tend to move too far once they've found a, a nice safe home. They just settle into that area as long as there's reliable food source. So they don't actually know it's a marine reserve, but they just continue to live there because they, they tend to stay in one area. Um, and nobody catches it, so it doesn't it doesn't get removed from that environment. And I think once you start to get more big fish, which is what happens in a marine reserve, settling in, a, in an area, then that actually attracts more more marine life to come in there, whether it be predators to hunt those other fish, or whether it just be um, fish which which tend to get along together. So um, in some of the video that Shelley shared, shared earlier in the week, we had a school of tarakehi, uh, with some blue moki uh, swimming in amongst them, with some snapper swimming in amongst them, and some trevally as well. So sometimes these different species of fish tend to hang out together, and then they will congregate where there are other fish. There's safety in numbers in nature, so once you've got a large number of fish, it's actually safe for other fish to come in and hang out there, because if a predator comes through, your odds of getting eaten are a bit less. So they don't know where the boundaries are, and that is... Probably my biggest frustration. And if they decide to go on a bit of a swim, they might actually take themselves out of the protected area, and that might be quite unsafe for them because they're rather tasty fish and people like to catch them. But that is the flip side of a marine reserve is you get lots of big fish. They decide to move on, see, see if they can find somewhere new to live, and they become available for recreational fishers to, to potentially catch when they swim out of the reserve. And that's all part of uh, the benefit that the marine reserve provides to the local, local fishing and boating community. 
Awesome. Great. Thanks, William. All right, let's move on to our next question, please. Hi, my name's Connor. What's this? What are these vents mechanisms to push out? So, Connor, sorry. We've just got a plane flying overhead, Connor. Hang on a moment. It's a busy little airport in Kapiti. Busy, all right. Yeah. Um, it's an easy way to get in here if you're wanting to come for a visit. Yeah, Air Chathams. I think I'll fly next time. Yeah, do it. It's a great um, little place. Air Chathams. Okay, yep. Yeah, because, um, yeah, right. Good. I might do that next time. Connor, sorry, the plane's just disappearing now. If you can repeat that, please. What do you think you can have done with the fish out? <laughs> One more time, Connor. Sorry, we're both a bit hard of hearing. That's what happens with age. The trouble is, Connor, is that the questions I've got down here are different to the ones that you guys are asking. What is the water temperature around the island? No, no. The question is what defence mechanisms the fish have. Oh, right. That's a great question. Gosh, that, that is a whole area of scientific study. People dedicate their whole lives to exploring the different defence mechanisms. If we think about some of the common kapiti uh, types of marine life. Um, stingrays and eagle rays, which are very common on the Kapiti coast, they, um, they are what we call defensively aggressive. And they, you might know about this, they have on their tail um, a couple of very sharp, quite long barbs on their tail. And so if an orca whale comes in to have a, a stingray snack, and orcas do really love to eat stingrays um, or eagle rays, the, the stingray or the eagle ray will raise its tail up and show that barb. And there are actually records of, um, of orcas having died from, um, from the barb getting stuck in around their jaw and causing a, you know, like a, a life-threatening infection. Sure. So they use a defensive uh, mechanism, which is uh, kind of based around aggression. Um, other fish, uh, Something like uh, the marblefish, for example, um, is going to use camouflage, so it will sit very still. It looks very much like the colour of the kelp. I mean, Nicole, who was with us yesterday, she's a fantastic diver, and she has been finding these fish called kelpfish, whose bodies actually look like the yeah, kelp. Yeah, I saw a so fish. You've got to look really, amazing. really closely to find them. Other fish hang out in a school, so you can hang out with a bunch of other fish, and that will reduce your chances of getting eaten because yeah. the fish all to move together, which confuses the predator, and it doesn't know which one to go for. And when I go spearfishing, and I am, am in that environment where there's a school of fish, it is quite tricky. You think, should I get that one? Should I get that one? And by the time you've decided which one to get, they've all moved on. So schooling is a way of um, providing a defense against predators as well. Camouflage, I mean, probably the master of camouflage is the octopus. So they can change color completely. Wow. They can change their skin color and in less than a second, they can change from one color to the next. So they'll hide and they'll do that both to avoid predators, but also to be able to capture their prey. Um, and they also have another really interesting defense mechanism, which is to squirt out ink. Mm. So if a fish tries to attack an octopus, it'll, uh, it'll squirt out this ink, which means the fish is blinded. It can't see where the octopus has gone. And then that octopus has little jets, which you can use to shoot away quite quickly and make its escape. Uh, some animals are lucky enough to be born with a with armour, so uh, exoskeleton uh, as their defensive mechanism. Um, a crayfish is a great example of that. They have 
sharp, uh, a very hard shell, and then they have lots of spiky, um, spiky points all over their shells. So it's almost like trying uh, for a fish trying to, to bite a rose bush, if you like. Very spiky, and they also gather together, and they're all back into the hole, and all of the sharp, pointy bits on their body are pointing forward. So that makes it really hard for a fish to get in there. So there's a variety of mechanisms that that. Um, different uh, marine life have, have evolved to, to work defensively. Uh, shellfish will obviously have a shell as their primary means of, of defense. So yeah, there's and a few different ways. Burrowing into the sand. Yeah, burrowing into the sand, hiding, um, and that ability to change color that the octopus and squid and cephalopods have is pretty incredible. So yeah, check that out online. Cool. Good question, thanks for that. How are we going with our questions? With Lee, I'm a bit lost now, but... Um, they should have been the same one. Don't know what's happening there. Okay, Nico. Hi, I'm Nico. G'day. Hi, Nico. Hi. Fire away. We've got another plane overhead. Um, but yeah, we'll do our best. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How deep is the reserve? Oh, good. We heard wow. that. Good. Yeah, so Carp Sea Marine Reserve is quite special in that regard because most of our coastal marine reserves are relatively shallow. Like Goat Island, for example, yeah. it just goes out from the shore. Even the Poor Knights Islands, because it doesn't go that far out from, from the islands, it's not that deep. But at Carpety, we have this, we're, we're basically, Carpety Island is like the top of the Cook Strait, and the Cook Strait is the passage or the body of water that goes between the North and the South Island, and we get really strong currents from the tide, uh, and particularly at the moment with the full moon. And so over thousands, millions of years even, those tides as they move between Kapiti Island and the mainland have scoured out a very deep channel. So we're nearly 80 metres deep in the middle of the, the channel between the mainland and Kapiti Marine Reserve. And Kapiti Marine Reserve protects some of that deep water habitat, which could be home to things like harpooka. We haven't been for a dive there because it's too deep. Um, could be home to some other fish that we haven't even seen yet. So there's some really deep water in between here and the island. And that's what we travelled over on the way out. So 80 metres is too deep to dive? Too deep for most people. Yeah, you'd need some pretty special equipment to do 80 metres. Um, you'd be doing long decompression times. A submarine, that's my dream. A submarine up the coast. Well, how deep does that freediver? Oh, William like, Truebridge. Well, so he's 102 metres is the deepest well, that he's send dived. him down. Just send him down. He won't be down there for long, but he can have a quick look. Um, yeah, but freediving for, for one of those really top uh, freediving athletes would probably be just about the easiest way to do it. Um, most recreational diving is... is sort of less than 30 metres and 40 metres is the maximum rec recommended depth for recreational or sport diving. So that gives you an idea of how deep it is out there. It's very deep water. Yeah, I, I mean, it is a, it's a long way down for, for humans because of that pressure, all that water yeah. that's on top of you creates a lot of pressure. So there we go, 80 metres, short answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we don't really do short answers. No. <laughs> so Witherly School, have we got any more questions from you this morning? Yeah, come on. Cool. Meredith? Yep. Yep. Right, so endangered species, want to know about numbers of them? That's, that's uh, again, a question that's not uh, super straightforward to answer. So we don't actually have a catalogue of every type of marine life that lives within the marine reserve. Mm. So we really don't know the answer to that question um, it's it's relatively unexplored there's been these surveys that divers have done department of conservation's organized over the years but they're really looking at your main and quite common 
types of fish. Mm. Um, as I talked about earlier um, in, in this field trip, uh, hapoka, which is not endangered, but is certainly down to a lot smaller numbers than it was when, uh, when humans first arrived in New Zealand. Um, that is, doesn't appear to have come back into the marine reserve, although we know that they were there uh, mm. pre-fishing um, and in the early days of fishing. Um, but probably things like the little blue penguin, which is not a fish, but a, a, a seabird, um, some of the shearwaters, um, that type of... So seabirds are probably the ones that have, have suffered the most from, um, from what, what, what's gone on around Kapiti and in the wider marine environment in the last 100, 150 years. Um, so seabirds would be the rarer... Um, of our of our species, but as far as we know, there's nothing that is um, identified as being endangered within Kapiti Marine Reserve um, as such. But there's a lot that we don't know, and we talked the other day about the mystery fish, uh, an unidentified species that's presumably a fairly rare fish if it's never been seen before. So, whether it's endangered or not is a hard 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 to know. Though the ocean is so vast. Now, if you're not sure about what Ben's talking about regarding the mystery fish, make sure you have a look. There's a link in my diary from Tuesday. Really interesting news story about that. Thanks for that. So that must bring us up to our final question from Witherley School this morning, please. Yep, last question, William. Yeah, I'd say these students are incredibly uh, quiet in their classroom, aren't they? Very well. It's great. It's good. They're good. Good kids in Blenheim. Yeah. What is the most dangerous species in the reserve? <laughs> the most the, dangerous. Now, was, I, well, this is a good question. The most dangerous fish or the most dangerous species? Let's answer that question with the idea of the most dangerous species. Dangerous species. I reckon um, very occasional visitor, but I would, I would probably put the orca actually up there as potentially the most dangerous. Certainly for stingrays and eagle rays, it would be the most dangerous uh, predator or species in the reserve when they come through. Um, we talked about the great white sharks have been seen around Kapiti Island in the last few years. Um, but in reality, the most dangerous species within Kapiti Marine Reserve is human beings. So um, the people who don't know the rules, the people who choose not to follow the rules, and they are a small minority, I might add, but they are out there. Those people that go and fish in the marine reserve illegally, the people who take or disturb marine life illegally, they're the most dangerous species in the marine reserve. Um, and generally speaking, um, even if there's a shark out there, it's not going to come and attack you. Um, most of these animals are defensively aggressive, so they'll only be aggressive towards uh, a swimmer or a diver if you do something to them. So a stingray or an eagle ray could be very dangerous if you accidentally stood on it. It would try and um, defend itself by using that, the barb on the tail, which we talked about earlier. So yeah, humans, uh, short answer, the most dangerous species in the marine reserve, probably the most dangerous species on the planet. So we actually have to tread really right. carefully as, uh, as a species because uh, we're having massive impacts and uh, your whole idea of the marine reserve is to, to make that place as safe as possible for the marine life that naturally inhabits that area. Cool, hey thanks Willie for that question. Good question to finish up on. Um, that's the end of our formal part of the web conference. So um, I wanna thank Witherley School. They've pretty much been with us every day this yeah, week on the web awesome. conference, so that's fantastic. And that's from down in Blenheim. Yeah, Blenheim. So, um, I've actually got a marine reserve uh, down in the Marlborough Sounds, which I'm hoping to get to in April, called Long Island Marine Reserve. Have any of you, your students, had a chance to explore Long Island Marine Reserve? Couple. Awesome. And then you've got uh, Marine Reserve down in Kaikoura as well. So you've got a couple of uh, marine reserves that are sort of 
you know, reasonably close at hand for you guys to visit? Well, what what Cody suggested in his little in his little um, recap of yesterday on the website was that they perhaps go and visit the big estuary that they've got there, mm, yeah, um, yeah, because that might be a good place to do some marine meter squared work. Be a great place mm. to do marine meter squared. Yeah. So yeah, have a think about that, guys. So no, thanks, Witherley School, for being a great part of the field trip this week. We've enjoyed your company, um, and so now, if you have any further questions, Witherley School or any others listening, now's your time to pop it in the chat box. We don't have a lot of time. We've got got a lot to get through today. So if there are any further burning questions, I've just scrolled through. Barry's popped in the questions that we were asked this morning. So we've covered those. So we're going to be going out and doing some um, some actions to look after the marine environment today, aren't we, Andrew, yeah. which I'm really excited about. We'll be doing some beach litter surveys, a bit of a beach cleanup. Well, the thing with the sea, so what, I'll give you a bit of an idea about what you'll see on tomorrow's video. So this, in, in the past, you know, you might get a group together and you go and do a beach cleanup, and that's great, clean up the beach, put the rubbish in the bin, end of story. But this is a little bit more than that, isn't it, uh, Ben? Yeah, so we're, we're going to be going in and again using um, some scientific methods. So we'll be uh, working as citizen science scientists again today, helping to clean up the environment, but also being very uh, methodical about it. Um, and then uh, not just picking the rubbish up, but we're going to separate the rubbish out into different litter categories. Uh, we're going to count and weigh all of the different types of litter, and then we're going to use that information, we're going to load that information into a national database to help try and change um, the situation uh, further upstream, so to try and reduce the uh, the chance of those types of litter coming onto the beaches. So that's a project that actually uh, any of the schools that are involved in the Virtual Marine Reserve field trip mm. could, uh, could get involved in too. It's a great way to go out, uh, have a day at the beach, look after your local marine environment, and also contribute to um, to the, the body of scientific knowledge that we have around that particular problem of beach and marine litter. So um, that's what we're going to be doing today. It's going to be fun. Cool. Uh, Barry just popped the question in about water temperature. And, oh, yeah. Uh, does, does that influence the type of fish that live around the, the marine reserve? Definitely. And, and is there a possibility climate change is having an effect? Yeah, there are two, two really uh, interesting uh, questions that go together. So um, last summer we had a marine heat wave here, and believe it or not, the water temperature got up around the island where we were snorkeling a couple of days ago, up to nearly 23 degrees, 22.8. Oh, yeah, well, even a little bit warmer than Northland, potentially. It's very, very warm water. And that's because we have um, the Tasman Sea, that we get warm water coming across from from, uh, from Australia, coming across the Tasman Sea. Uh, even um, over the last few days, it's been over 20 degrees, nearly 21 degrees. So over summer, we get very warm water. And what that means is we get schools of kingfish, which are beautiful fish to see in the water coming in. Um, we get schools of snapper coming in as well. Uh, we got the mystery fish coming in, which we think, again, was um, a function of that warmer water. Um, and yeah, we are actually quite interested and a little bit concerned about what the future might hold if we get really warm water. Over around about 23, 24 degrees, the kelp starts to really struggle. So um, as we get warmer water, there's a possibility that the kelp which kind of is, is like the forest on the land. It forms the habitat and provides a food source for all the fish life. Shelter. Yeah, that, that, there may be impacts on the kelp, the types of kelp and how well it can grow. And another impact of climate change that people don't think about as much, but which is definitely in our minds is, and we've got a, a potentially a big weather event coming this weekend. When you get heavy rain now, 
um, which and, and more frequent and more severe storms as a, as a side effect of climate change. Um, we get a lot of rain and when it's been really dry like it's been, which is another effect of climate change, we can end up with a lot of um, mud dirt from the land, we call it sedimentation being washed into the ocean, and that forms like a dark cloud on the surface of the water, which again the kelp is a plant, so it photosynthesizes, so that when there's that, that heavy layer of uh, sediment uh, rich water that's come off the land down the rivers and out into the sea, that can, can make it very dark on the bottom where the kelp is, and so it makes it hard for the kelp to photosynthesize and to grow. So if you've got multiple impacts, you've got sedimentation, clogging up the reef with mud and making the water dark, you've got really warm water making it hard for the kelps which like cold water to grow, then yeah, those impacts can potentially um, combine and, and cause some pretty serious change. Um, another really interesting area that um, is being researched at the moment is something called ocean acidification, where the CO2 that's being absorbed out of the atmosphere into the ocean, because the ocean's our largest uh, sink for carbon that we emit, so for, for for human emissions of carbon dioxide, the, the ocean's the largest sink. That's slowly changing the pH or the acidity of the water. And that's predicted to have a pretty significant impact on exoskeleton-based animals like crayfish, like crabs, shellfish, things that form a hard structure to protect themselves. So that's all um, really interesting areas for research and mm. where citizen scientists are actually making a contribution too. And um, so I'd encourage all of, um, of our young citizen scientists out watching today to, to get involved in, and start in their local area, um, contributing to the body of knowledge that we have. So Nicole actually um, is doing a project surveying uh, kelp using a drone in Wellington Harbour, mm. specifically to answer that question, you know, what impact is changing water temperatures going to have on the distribution of kelp? So yeah, really, um, really interesting area to keep an eye on at the moment. That's well, a kingfish. Yeah, it's a kingfish. Oh. Yep, that's a, unfortunately a dead one, but um, you know, I, I am a kaitiaki, I think. So um, I do go fishing, but I just try and take enough for a feed outside of the marine reserve, of course. And Andrew and I were talking about this. It's you know, if we've got really abundant marine reserves and they're working really well. Uh, we can go out and we can efficiently uh, catch catch a meal to share with our family, which is a really important part of, I think, being a Kiwi, being a New Zealander. Um, so, yes, that is a kingfish, Barry. Okay. Well, <laughs> guys, we're off to clean up the beach. So um, it's been wonderful having you join us this morning on our final web conference for the Marine Reserves field trip. This uh, recording for the web conference will be available at some stage today. And... Um, Make sure you check out the videos for today and have a read of my diary and check out what the ambassadors have been up to. And uh, how about you unmute and say a big final goodbye? Yeah. Bye. See ya. See ya. Awesome. Awesome. Bye. Bye. Bye.